electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. One of the best real-time indicators of the economy just surprised everyone, and it's complicating the outlook for the Fed and for investors. We'll tell you what it is and where our market guest sees opportunity now because of it. Meantime, Tesla and Netflix selling off in today's session following results. We have the trades from here with one having potential downside of 80% and the other a 20% rally. Not going to tell you which is which right now. You'll have to stick around. The analysts behind those calls are here to make their case. And gray hair don't care. A recurring theme on this show has been the booming elder economy and all the brands from spirits to restaurants who are looking to cash in on it. Today we'll speak with a group of seniors who are blowing up TikTok and the skincare company partnering with them. Before all that, though, let's get Dom Chu with today's numbers. Baby boomers do have all the cash. We know that much on the balance sheet. So anyway, Kelly, uh, the markets overall are mixed, as you can see, but it really is about the tech weakness, and that's the headliner today. Kelly mentioned the Netflix and Tesla trades. That's the big drag on the Nasdaq right now, down 1.5%, 218 points to the downside for the Nasdaq composite, 14,139. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, some outperformance in some of those value-oriented names, up three-quarters of 1% for the Dow Industrials, 261 points to the upside, 35,323. And that kind of broader market view of the S&P 500, pulling back a little bit here, 4547 is your last trade, down 18 points. That's roughly one-half of 1%. It has been a down day overall. At the highs of the session, we were down one in the S&P, down 24 at the lows, so tilting towards the lower end of that trading range. Another place besides Netflix and Tesla that's seeing some downside is weakness in the red-hot semiconductor industry. Right now, the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETFs down two and three quarters percent, but you can see it's pulled down just here from a record high just this past week. Now, the catalyst today was a better-than-expected earnings report from Taiwan Semiconductor, the biggest maker of semiconductors out there. But it's the current quarter forecast that came in a little lighter than expectations that's dragging many of those red-hot chip stocks down. So, again, big outsized moves to the downside, but may, way big upside moves over the course of the last year or so. So keep that in mind for those semiconductor stocks. And then if you're looking at stocks of the day so far, check out at least some of the moves that we're seeing in the home builders. They're red across the board, but that's the story. Because for DR Horton, NVR, and Pulte Group, I'm actually going to replace those. They get gold stars. Each of these stocks, housing-related, hit record highs earlier in the session and then lost momentum going down through there. Again, a red-hot sector, but DR Horton came out with much better-than-expected results, a good forecast, sales of new homes, at least the order side of things, jumped 37% from the same time last year. So, Kelly... Another red-hot sector in housing that saw a nice move higher earlier tied to D.R. Horton, 
losing steam now. It looks like a lot of folks are trying to take some profits off the table and using some catalyst from the headlines to do so. I'll send things back over to you. Fair enough, Dom. Thank you very much, our Dom Chu. Now to one of the most surprising economic developments of the day. We learned this morning that new claims for jobless benefits dropped much more than expected last week to just 228,000. In other words, the pace of layoffs has actually slowed at the very time it was widely expected to start picking up. Claims had spiked, as you can see there behind me, to 265,000 in June. A clear warning sign for the labor market and the economy. But now they're reversing lower, making it less likely we will tip into recession anytime soon. My next guest is Long Bond, so I'll ask if it makes him a little itchy. Joining me is Alex Morris. He's chief investment officer of FM Investments. Welcome, Alex. It's good to have you back. Kelly, thanks for having me back. You know, I'm just joking a little bit. You also own NVIDIA. So it's not like you're, to quote Joe Kernan, sleeping with the light on. But explain <laughs> to me, I mean, I did see the 10-year, you know, it's up back to sort of the mid-380s. Uh, you're on the shorter end of the curve. But um, does this keep the Fed in play for now? I think it does. I don't think the Fed was ever out of play, and they'd made that pretty clear. We've priced in a quarter of a point. They said get ready for another rise towards the end of the year, and this will give them what they need to do it. But it also urged a little bit of caution. This is one data point subject to revision. We shouldn't get too excited, but I do think it does show that the Fed does need to stay on, on rates, and they will keep them higher for longer until they have gotten rid of persistent inflation fears. What's that doing to the price? Let's show the T-bill, the X-bill. These are the three- and six-month Treasury ETFs, maybe even the two-year. What does that do to the price of those ETFs? Well, if rates go up, price goes down. But that's great news if you're trying to harvest yield because the yield will continue to be high. Those are all yielding 5% plus, which is a great place to be, particularly if you don't have a strong view on where you want your risk to be, whether it's duration assets or duration itself in bonds or Tech stocks. Might as well hang out and clip 5%. Yeah, I mean, explain to me the investment philosophy behind, you know, I want to own some yield, but I want to own, you know, NVIDIA. Like, there, what's the kind of overarching philosophy here? So the play we came into the year with was we wanted to barbell our approach between tech and growth stocks that we thought had been both beaten up and long-term had great long-term op- uh, earnings opportunities. And the AI revolution that became very personal this year proved that out. The other answer was to stay and take the Fed at its word and stay on the short end of the curve where... We felt we had the opportunity to earn yield before we were ready to put all of our chips back into the equity markets or to really start to unwind into longer duration bonds. Right. So what do you do now? Because that setup, you know, in July is very different than it was in January. Yeah, the setup's different, but I think the result's probably pretty much the same. AI is not going anywhere. We're still buying lots of iPhones. We're, We're still in that space. It may take a break, but in all fairness, momentum stocks need a breather from time to time. And this is what that breather probably looks like. Not coincidental it's happening during July and August when folks are away from the desk anyway. It also highlights something that Mike Santoli is always beating the drum about, but the tech stocks can do well in a period of rising rates. Absolutely. They have in the past. They probably will continue to do so now. And I wouldn't look for that trend to change anytime soon. So what do you do between now and December then? I mean, as people are kind of now changing their macro calls, lowering their recession odds, maybe, you know, putting one or one more Fed hike than they otherwise would have back in play. Uh, We still like the short end of the curve, but we increasingly are seeing people take those profits and reinvest in longer duration assets, particularly in some bonds. We've stayed away from high yield bonds. There's the default rates ticking up to 4% are are a little worrisome, and we'll stay away from some of that action. Um, But with credit 
conditions generally tightening. Spreads are, are super tight again, which is good to see. We think there's some real value in adding duration, both in the Treasury market and starting to eke back into the corporate space. But it's interesting what you said about, you know, so for instance, you look at the S&P today, and of course, we're going to talk about Netflix and we're going to talk about Tesla, but Discover Financial is the worst stock. I think they had a double miss. You know, we're seeing what the first ally talking about some worsening underlying trends, now a name like Discover. I mean, you do wonder if credit quality is deteriorating and going to eventually kind of bubble up from uh, maybe these unique or niche companies to something, you know, broadly more of a headwind? It, it kind of has to. At some level, we appreciate that not every company is going to always surprise. Some of these companies learned that they could put up pretty aggressive earnings expectations and be rewarded in stock price appreciation. And then they miss and they get smacked pretty hard for it, which is what the market should do. But the financial sector is usually the most sensitive to interest rates, given that's ultimately their business. There are a lot of bank CFOs, a lot of credit company CFOs looking very tightly at net interest margin numbers, and that's going to be harder to do. So I'm not too worried about some of those starting to falter. I, I would worry more if we saw a broad set of defaults going across or broad misses across every sector. And we just haven't seen that. Today is not that day. Alex, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Alex Morris with FM Investments. Meantime, existing home sales in June just dropped to a five-month low amid a dearth of inventory and stubbornly high prices. High mortgage rates are a major disincentive to potential sellers who don't want to give up their ultra-low rates. But now that is starting to have a broader effect on the labor market and the economy. Steve Leesman is here with those findings in the latest CNBC All-America survey. Steve. Kelly, thank you. Yeah, higher rates are beginning to impact the consumer and it's changing everything from how consumers spend on cars to whether or how much home they buy. Take a look at five areas that we looked at. 31% say they're more likely to pay off credit cards because of higher rates. 47% say they are less likely to get a new credit card. 54% less likely to buy a home. And you can see your majorities less likely to buy a car, less likely to take out a home line of credit. And you can see over here, if you don't mind my friend coming over this way, look at that. 43% of the poor working class have an issue with, are less likely to do four or more of these things compared to just 20% of the upper and mid, uh, upper class and, and mid and well to do showing us that the poor are being more affected by these higher rates than the wealthier. Let's look and drill down specifically into mortgages. You can see here 27% delayed buying a home because of high rates, 25% decided to rent, 15% delayed selling a home, 11% bought a less expensive home. And look at this one, 9% say because of higher rates, they turned down a job requiring them to move. So that's a big issue. 43% Kelly have been impacted by at least one of these. And again, if you look at the demographics and the breakdown, again, the younger are going to be more affected by, the, by, by this than the older people are, 18 to 34. I don't know if we have that next slide, but I could read you the data. Maybe we're having a little bit of a problem here. There, oh, thank you very much, folks in the back there. 56% of the working class are affected by this, but 27% of the upper class. Younger folks, much more than older folks, and urban more than rural. So it is beginning to hit home. And then we'll wonder, Kelly, when and if and how this shows up in the macro data. Steve, it's such a, a big deal that you almost wonder, I mean, I don't want to sound crazy here, but should the Fed start cutting rates just to unlock, uh, you know, mobility in the housing market and therefore in the broader economy? Ha, that's a great question. Whether or not that mobility right now is one of the problems they have 
with higher wages, right? It limits your worker pool. We do have the work at home thing. We have a little bit more mobility when it comes to the technology. But it is a great question as to whether how, and how gummed up it is. The thing that you said at the beginning in the introduction to this report, Kelly, about the fact that homes are not on the market is a very big deal because let's say you wanted to move, your choices for moving are limited. I don't know about cutting rates, but there's certainly an opportunity for the Fed to not hike anymore. I don't think it'll avail itself next week uh, to start to think about and solve these problems. It is very interesting when we see this data showing how much more poor people are affected by this than the wealthier. No, and now that it's really showing up in in a macro way, I'm glad you're documenting it. Steve, thanks very much. Pleasure. Steve Leisman. Still ahead, Netflix having its worst day in over a year, despite adding 6 million new subscribers. And Tesla is tanking despite beating estimates on the top and bottom lines. We'll tell you what's really dragging the duo down next. Plus, 70% of the disposable income in this country now belongs to baby boomers. They're even infiltrating social media as influencers with all of this economic heft. The astonishing numbers behind the grandfluencer economy ahead. As we go to break, here's a glance at markets. It's a different story depending on where you look. Dow's up 240 points, seven-tenths of a percent, but the Nasdaq's the worst performer, down one and a half percent. The small caps are down a percent. The 10-year yield is back up to 387, and the S&P's down 17. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We have some major earnings movers today. Both are to the downside and weighing on the broader markets, the Nasdaq especially. Let's unpack what happened here and what it means for the rest of the names about to report their results in this edition of Earnings Exchange, starting with Netflix, down 9% right now after last night's earnings beat, although revenue fell short. Subscriber growth was better than expected, up 9%, nearly 6 million new users signing up as the company cracked down on password sharing. But revenue remains a question mark for the rest of the year. Let's bring in TV Cowan Managing Director John Blackledge for more. John, you scooched up your price target on Netflix by about 15 bucks this morning. Modest move. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. Um, let's, un- let's unpack the quarter. Uh, so 2Q was really pre- actually pretty positive. They had the big sub beat, uh, number one. Um, they had the beat on margins and earnings. Uh, and then revenue was a little light, um, about 1% uh, light uh, versus our expectations. And then 3Q, the guide, the member um, net ad guide uh, was better than what we had in consensus, was right around where I thought buy side was at about $6 million. Um, You had the big free cash flow uh, uh, raised to $5 billion from $3.5 billion, but then the revenue uh, guide was a little light, about about 2% below. Right. And that was because um, average revenue per member is down. So. 
It's down 9% today. Expectations were really high going in. It gained 8% in the last week. It's up. It was up 62% year-to-date going into last night. So expectations high. It's been running. Uh, it's giving some back today. But we, we ended up raising our, our net ads and our, and our margin assumptions and our price target to 515 from 500. Got it. And I listen, we're not going to make too much of a move that only unwinds about the past week uh, to the upside, but we could sort of probe a little bit on this revenue issue, especially revenue per user. Is this a result of the ad supported tier or what's going on here? Yeah, well, you know, the paid sharing initiative is the driver of top line growth this year. It's driving, accelerating, albeit a little bit less than we thought, um, revenue growth in 3Q. And then management thinks it's going to revenue will materially step up in 4Q because of paid sharing. But it's mostly um, driving member growth. So it's not driving revenue per member. So um, with paid sharing, you got the uh, a member beat in 2Q. Um, the good guide in 3Q, and um, so so mostly it's driving uh, members, and and so I think. But as why? We get into next, why, if yeah, it's driving ahead. member growth, wouldn't that drive revenue growth? What am I missing? It is driving revenue growth, but it's not driving um, revenue uh, per member. It's not driving pricing. So there's no there's no like impact on pricing, and I think that is the that's um, where they were a little bit light uh, in 2Q and in 3Q. And I think as we get into next year and you get away from paid sharing, which is going to be positive over the a positive driver, the next couple quarters, they're probably likely going to raise price at some, they could raise price at some point, uh, next year. And I think next year's top line growth, at least how we model it will be a little bit more balanced between, uh, user growth and, uh, and, and pricing growth or average re- revenue per member growth. All right, John, thank you very much. Good to have your reaction today. We appreciate it. Thank you. John Blackledge from TD Cowan. Moving on to Tesla now, where the stock is down about 8% today after more than doubling since Jan 1. They also had a beat on both the top and bottom line. Operating margins, though, were the worst in five quarters after price cuts. And information on their much-delayed Cybertruck left investors wanting more as no specific details were given on production and pricing of the vehicle. My next guest is sticking with his underperform rating on the stock, says things really aren't getting any better. Let's bring in Tony Sakanagi, senior researcher research analyst at Bernstein. It's good to see you, Tony. Uh, You know, I think you'd have to acknowledge, right, and maybe we've talked about this before, there's massive upward momentum in Tesla shares, regardless of all the fundamentals we're talking about. Um, What do you think would reverse that here? Uh, Good afternoon, Kelly, and thanks for having me on. Uh, Look, I think it's very difficult to know, but, you know, what investors appear to be reacting to uh, this quarter is that there's continued uncertainty and that it's unclear that margins have bottomed. They declined again sequentially. Um, and I think investors want more clarity. They want more clarity on the Cybertruck, but particularly they want more clarity on when margins may stabilize. And um, I think it could be tough for the stock for the next several quarters because I do think there's a chance uh, or a likelihood that Tesla will continue to need to lower price to drive the kind of growth that it wants. And along with that price, uh, those price declines, we'll see pressure on margins. I thought it was interesting that Musk said, you know, when interest rates go up, prices have to come down because it's not apples to apples, but we're obviously not seeing that so much in the housing market. Is this a case of, you know, Tesla's cutting prices because interest rates and macro, or are they cutting prices because EV oversupply and and not enough consumer demand? I think it's more the fact that Tesla has only two products uh, addressing only a small part of the market today. 
Um, and there's really a limit to how many of those vehicles Tesla can sell. So right now they're selling more than a million units a year in the Model Y, and they're selling you know more than 500,000 units a year in the Model 3. Um, those are extraordinary numbers for any car. There are only two cars in the world that sell more than a million units. Uh, so Tesla's doing fantastically. The issue is they want to keep growing another 25, 30%, but they only have these two units and they're likely reaching, and they appear to be reaching their saturation levels in terms of the number of consumers who want them. So they either need to lower price or come out with new models. And the new models are a little ways off. The Cybertruck is coming out later this year, but it'll be low volume next year. And the next high volume cars are likely only coming out in 2025. So if you're Tesla and you want to continue to grow, um, and you have this relatively limited product lineup, your lever is price, and that's what they're using. Why do you think they didn't have more to say about Cybertruck in the call last night? Um, you know, look, I, Tesla's planning some kind of formal announcement, likely at the end of September or October. Um, and so they, they, like to, um, they like to sort of do an unveiling and a reveal then. Um, I don't think they want it to front run. I'm not sure um, they have a good sense on what availability will be. And also, I think pricing is going to be quite expensive. And so they want to tell the whole story, the capabilities of the vehicle and the initial price all at one time. Fair enough. Finally, so if let's if I'm looking at the right number, 18.1 percent, I think was automotive X incentives or whatever it's called. Where do you think that number is going to be 12 months, maybe 24 months from now? Um, look, I, I think it depends on how quickly Tesla wants to grow. So certainly we think there's uh, a chance that those numbers continue to go down. Um, it depends on how quickly they can bring down their own costs, but also how quickly they'll need to lower price to drive uh, to drive volume. So we're, we're modeling margins kind of flat to slightly down in the near term. And then it's really up to Tesla next year. They're going to do about 1.8 million units this year. If they want to grow to 2.4, we think they'll have to cut price and margins will go down. If they're content growing and only maybe selling 2 million units next year, then I think the margins can be flat to up. And either way, your price target is? $150 a share. All right. From 265. Tony, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Tony Sakanagi from Bernstein. Still ahead, this former Morgan Stanley financial advisor ran a Ponzi scheme under the firm's nose for a decade. Find out about efforts to hold one of America's largest brokerage firms accountable. A CNBC investigation is next. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. A former Morgan Stanley financial advisor is headed to federal prison after he admitted running a multi-million dollar Ponzi scheme under the firm's nose for a decade. How did he get away with it for so long? And why has Morgan Stanley resisted giving the victims their money back? Scott Cohn has a CNBC investigation. You were about to hear a bald-faced lie. How do we know it's not a Ponzi scheme? It's not. I mean, the money's there. It is a Ponzi scheme and the money is not there. 
Sean, why'd you steal all the money? Well, thank you. Have a good day. That's Sean Good, sentenced in May to seven years in federal prison for running a $7 million scam while he was a financial advisor for Morgan Stanley here at the firm's branch in Wilmington, North Carolina. You sorry at all for what you did? Thank you. Have a good day. Caitlin Andrews, who recorded that phone call, was his biggest victim, losing pretty much everything she had, more than $1.5 million. It feels violating. It's not so much that I hate him or am angry at him. I'm more just sort of standing here an open wound. She says she planned to use the money from a divorce settlement to raise her two sons. You stole from your boys. That's the worst part. Andrews says she saw no reason not to trust Good, who was already handling her mother's accounts. He just seemed really invested in our family. Just seemed very trustworthy and friendly. Well, and that he worked for Morgan Stanley. Good would later admit that a Morgan Stanley product was at the heart of his fraud. Known as a liquidity access line of credit, the firm pitched it in videos like this as a way for clients to borrow against their portfolios. Access the cash you need to fund your goals with the strength of Morgan Stanley behind you. She was to transfer the money from her line of credit to him as her financial advisor. It was no risk, high yield, short term bonds. Instead, Sean Good was stealing the money. Sean Good spent that money to prop up a lavish lifestyle. European vacations, fancy cars, 800,000 in credit card bills. So effectively, Morgan Stanley is lending money to the victims of this scheme and that money then gets diverted into Sean Good's pocket. All of it undetected by Morgan Stanley, America's sixth largest brokerage firm for 10 years. They should have detected it and prevented it at the outset. Lou Straney is a 43-year veteran of the securities industry who consults on arbitration cases but is not involved with this one. The key here is the red flags very early on. As a supervisor, you're looking at the, the advisors that work for you and determine whether or not their lifestyle matches their income. Morgan Stanley declined our request for an interview. In a statement, a spokesperson said after discovering Mr. Good's fraud, he was promptly terminated from Morgan Stanley, that the firm is cooperating fully with law enforcement and working with counsel for Morgan Stanley clients to address their claims. Except it wasn't Morgan Stanley that discovered the fraud. Talk to us at all about the sentence. Sorry about Morgan Stanley. Thanks. Law enforcement sources say it was investigators from the IRS and the state. They were looking into Good's finances. Caitlin Andrews and the other victims heard it from them. I want my money and I want it in my hands. That's when she decided to confront Good and get it on tape. I have two boys. I am their only parent. This is all of my money and you took it. And you have it all. Caitlin, you have it all. We will get it all transferred back. If you go to... I, Listen, if you, this has been done outside Morgan Stanley, I'm well aware of that. And if they go to Morgan Stanley, they're, they will fire me. I mean, I will lose my job. It's a key to his scam, investigators say, keeping calls and emails on his personal accounts. The SEC says communicating like that violates record-keeping laws, a path for fraud. And for Morgan Stanley, it's not the first time. Last year, it paid a $125 million penalty to the SEC for off-channel communications and failure to reasonably supervise its employees in an industry crackdown that began in 2021. 
Sean Good pleaded guilty to fraud and money laundering. At his sentencing in May, he said there's no excuse for what he did, that the guilt and remorse is overwhelming. Caitlin Andrews was there, so were other victims. But not in court, nowhere near it, was anyone from Morgan Stanley. It doesn't surprise me that a person, a financial advisor, would steal money because there are bad people. What did surprise me is that a corporate entity as big and rich and powerful as Morgan Stanley wouldn't do the right thing. Now, after our story first appeared on CNBC.com this morning, Morgan Stanley responded with a new statement, noting that the fraud committed by Sean Good was committed outside firm systems and involved transfers to Good that were made from client accounts held elsewhere. The firm also notes that it has a settlement agreement in principle with Caitlin Andrews and her mother, who also lost everything, and says the firm is working with all clients who've raised claims to amicably resolve them. Now, multiple victims tell us that not only did Morgan Stanley resist paying them, they say the firm has attempted to hold them to those loans that Sean Good convinced them to take out, including charging interest. The judge did order Sean Good to pay $3.6 million in restitution, most of which prosecutors say he doesn't have. They say Sean Good stole around $7 million from Morgan Stanley clients. Morgan Stanley made about $11 billion in profits last year. Kelly? Scott, what other avenues would people have to get funds back other than from him directly, which he may not have, um, from Morgan Stanley, I suppose? I, I don't know what the precedent is for that or what the law would tell us about the likelihood of them getting uh, you know, compensated for what they lost. Well, it's limited, and this is standard in any uh, financial brokerage account. You're limited to arbitration through FINRA, and some of the clients have pursued that. The advantage of that is that it tends to go faster than going to court. The disadvantage is that uh, the decision of the arbitration panel is final. There's no right of appeal. Uh, punitive damages in arbitration are relatively rare, and usually these arbitration settlements are confidential. Wow, and maybe it should be a, a warning sign to people if they're asked to, you know, to borrow against their portfolio, as, as Sean Good was instructing them to do in this case. Scott, thanks for bringing us this reporting. Sure. We appreciate it. Keep us posted. Okay. Scott Cohn. Now to Pippa Stevens for a CNBC News update. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. A bipartisan group of senators today introducing proposed legislation to regulate the NCAA's Name, Image, and Likeness Policy, or NIL, which allows college athletes to profit. It would create a board that would oversee the policy and take several other steps to increase transparency. Co-sponsor Senator Richard Blumenthal telling Yahoo Sports the legislation would be a milestone step forward. Nevada police served a search warrant to an alleged witness in the Tupac Shakur murder investigation. In a warrant exclusively obtained by NBC News, Las Vegas police searched laptops and other electronic devices belonging to Dwayne Keith Davis, also known as Keith D. Police say Davis was one of the people in the suspect vehicle when the rapper was gunned down in a 1996 drive-by shooting. And Broadway seems to have avoided a strike. The organizations representing producers and theater stage employees announced they have reached a tentative agreement, avoiding a labor disruption similar to the one in Hollywood. Around 1,500 workers spanning 28 Broadway shows are covered by the anticipated agreement, which has yet to be ratified. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Pippa, thank you very much. A lot of people were concerned about that as well. Coming up, the creator economy is expected to hit half a trillion dollars in the next four years, and six web-savvy senior citizens are seizing the moment. In fact, they'll join us to talk about it on the other side of this break.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Have you noticed the latest trend showing up all over social media and TV? You're seeing more and more people over 50, 60, even 70 years old. ABC just unveiled its first 71-year-old golden bachelor, Martha Stewart gracing the cover of Sports Illustrated at 81. A new ad from winemaker Claude Dubois featuring alluring older people and companies like Viking Cruises catering exclusively to this crowd. Why? As always, follow the money. Baby boomers now control 70% of all disposable income in the U.S. They're also now spending nearly 15 hours online every week, which is why more and more companies are beginning to partner with them. The Retirement House is a TikTok account with over 5 million followers that features six seniors who are playing characters while creating curated content. They've partnered with several brands for ads, including skincare company CeraVe. And I'm now joined by the cast of The Retirement House, along with one of the creators, Adi Azran, and CeraVe's co-founder, Tom Allison. Well, this is a fun full house. Welcome, everybody, very much. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hi. <laughs> Adi, let me start with you. Where in the world did this idea for the TikTok account come from? Well, it started with uh, wanting to create something that just, you know, reaches a huge amount of people. I just loved making content. I was doing TikTok marketing at this company called Flighthouse. That's where I currently work. And uh, wanted to make an idea where um, uh, that I haven't seen before. There's a huge, there's a lot of content houses like the Hype House and all these other houses that were all young, hot people. Now we have old, hot people uh, <laughs> that, you know, just basically saw something that wasn't being created right um, at the time. So Monterey, yeah. let me uh, ask you, and you guys are hilarious. I mean, I almost like you're almost not safe for Kelly to follow because there's so many like, you know, it's kind of edgy and there's a lot of, you know what I mean? Like, so who who is watching this content? Who does this most? You guys are all professional actors, I should add. Most of us are. Yes, that's very true. But um, our followers, our bulk is, say, 18 to 24 like that. But those people are taking it to their grandparents and their families. And it's growing and growing. We're over, what, 5.2 million followers now. Um, we are out there and we have many loyal followers that want to be like us when they get older. I certainly do. <laughs> I, I want to be like you now, let alone when I get older. <laughs> Tom, I get it. Tom, thank you for clearing up a longstanding question in my house of how to pronounce Sarah V. Sarah V. So I, I stand corrected. <laughs> uh, I do love the product, yeah. even if I can't say it correctly. Tom, what gave you the idea to partner with uh, this group and what does that partnership look like? Well, first, thank you so much, Kelly, for having us and the interest in CeraVe. I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's really three reasons. One is there's a medical relevance, actually, to the use of moisturization as you get older. You might not realize, but as we all age, our skin naturally starts to break down. So a product like CeraVe makes sense for that generation. So we wanted to use the retirement house very much for that peer-to-peer -peer piece. The second piece, I think, is that this, you know, the pursuit of skin health really knows no age, you know, as we are all more active in social media, like it or not, basically our lives are on camera every single day. So this idea of having healthy skin absolutely is something that, you know, really crosses generation and bounds. And at the end of the day, the retirement house, you know, community and the, and the content that they create, like you referenced, it's just fun and engaging. Yeah. Uh, we, what we've saw in one campaign is 80 million different users liking the comments and the amount of engagement in terms of the comments 
we knew we had a home run and we love our partnership with the retirement house and, and we just love the fun, engaging content that they create. Monterey, who else, uh, you know, who's out there that you think you, Bud Light, who did, I mean, who, who else do you think uh, should be looking your way? Well, we have had contact with uh, KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Carnival Cruise Line, of course, is a uh, big supporter. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. given the demographic. Adi, there's uh, this group, the Retirement House. There's the old gays. There's, you know, older uh, stars of, of the cooking world who are attracting followers. I think you're going to have a hard time fending off the copycats, don't you? you know, honestly, I don't think so, because I think that something that we have is so special and it's not super easy to replicate. Um, I know that there's like individual creators, but um well, this this I just feel like this group of people is so special, and and along with Brandon and I, who are uh, creating the content, just the combo of all the things. I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's going to be hard for people to copy this. <laughs> yeah, Adi, can I ask how lucrative it is, or is that a dangerous question? I feel like I wouldn't. I, I don't. I, that's something I'd rather stay away from. But <laughs> but you're making money on it. Let's put it that way. Happening. It's yeah. happening. You know, KFC's coming. Airbnb, obviously. You know, like. We're very thankful and uh, love to uh, like partner with brands that, you know, really authentically fit with us. Monterey, I'll give you the last word is is I don't want to make any guesses here. Is 60 the new 30 is 70 the new 40? What, what, what do you think? Well, it is for us. I mean, it's the new 80. I mean, we're <laughs> you know, everybody wants to be us when they get older. And uh, we wanted to be us. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the joie de vivre, if we call it that, is absolutely infectious. And I think that's what attracts people the most. Thank you all so much for brightening our day. It's great to talk with you. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Again, that's the retirement. Bye-bye. You can follow them all on TikTok. Uh, and uh, Adi, thanks so much. Adi Osborne is the co-founder, co millennial co-founder, Tom Allison. Thank you as well. Uh, he is the co-founder of CeraVe Skincare. Coming up in a week where AI headlines propelled Microsoft and Apple to new all-time highs, what about Google? The company launched a new tool aimed at journalists, but the stock is down more than 4% this week. We've got details on that product and the share moves next. Welcome back. A story today in the New York Times saying Google is reportedly testing an AI tool to produce, yes, news stories. And they're pitching the service to The Times, The Washington Post, News Corp, and other outlets as a way to help journalists. Yesterday, we got the AI story about Apple. Earlier in the week, it was Microsoft. Let's talk about it all in today's Tech Check with our own Steve Kovac. Steve, welcome. Hey. We highlighted that Google has kind of been left out of the rally, at least in the past week or so. I don't know if this move is the kind of thing that would uh, get investors excited. Not necessarily, but if you just go back to, I think it was last week, they announced they put uh, Bard, their chatbot, in a few more countries and some new capabilities. That shares up like 4% despite no monetization plans for this. This one's interesting, though. This is something um, people in our industry have been, we have a job still for now, Kelly. But the idea here is, and look, I asked Google about it because worried for my own employment here. I was like, what, what is really going on? Google tells me, a spokesperson tells me, look, this is not meant to replace journalists or the reporting they do. Like we hear so often from these companies making these AI tools, this is to augment, to help you, to make you more productive, come up with different ways to write headlines, get more creative. 
creative, just like you would in a real newsroom, trying to you know talk to your colleagues, bounce ideas off like we do here <laughs> every day at CNBC. I think that's how they're trying to pitch it. But look, th there are plenty of other news organizations using AI just to straight up write news articles. BuzzFeed is, is experimenting with it. Uh, former uh, Gawker Media, now called Geo Media, they're doing it as well. So it's, it is happening on the more extreme level, too. And I think it's been happening in sports for a long time. You know, the idea that certain things can be kind of automated if you take a box score. Oh, it, of course. You know, I, I can even imagine, honestly, if you want a stock market write-up, all you need to know is, was it up? For If you want literally a three-sentence description, right. okay, you can do that. I don't really understand what the tools are helping people. Let's <laughs> listen. Us journalists don't necessarily have to be that creative. It's kind of about, hey, here are the this facts. This thing just happened. Let's yes. stack them together. There's layers of editors and you know headline writers and things like that. So it's it's still a little hazy to me what exactly they're trying to do. Right. Here. And 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 look, you know, there's there's always these people, uh, this idea of people using this technology. I'll go back to what IBM CEO Arvind Krishna said earlier this year, basically saying the quiet part out loud. We can replace 7,800 jobs with artificial intelligence. New York Times also had a really great story earlier this week about an AT&T call center employee who feels like she's training her own AI absolutely. replacement. And there, and there is absolutely one of the first places it's really oh, going to replace easily. jobs. That is, that is number one. And look, Google has demonstrated software before we even started talking about chatbots and, and, and the like. Google has demonstrated software that can replace that, that you can use to make a, a restaurant reservation, for example. So it, it's already being done. And look, it's up to companies, to whether or not these News Corp and all these other uh, journalism companies that are, are experimenting with it, whether or not they actually want to do it or not. Let me put it this way. I'm hearing from big-time investors who think Microsoft's $30 per head to use the tool is going to have literally hundreds of millions of users within like a year. You know, yeah. th th this isn't hype. They say like, this is for real. 30 bucks a head, you won't be able to on survive the On top of the, the 36 they're already paying. On top of the 36. Yeah. You look at what Google's doing though, and is there, do you see dollar signs? Right? Not I mean, yet. Th th and I think that explains the gap in, in the share behavior. Oh, it absolutely bit. does. And look, this has been the story all year that Microsoft has been ahead of Google, both product-wise and coming up with monetization plans. But I I'll quote our uh, contributor, Alex Kantowitz, who was on uh, earlier this week, talking about this doesn't mean Google's out of the game yet and it's not going to just you know things aren't going to run out of time by the end of this year or the end of next year Google has plenty of runway there's plenty of room for growth Google has a huge uh, footprint uh, with their apps and services and education especially there's a lot of you know wrinkles there as well. But yeah. so it, it's not over. It's not just because Microsoft is ahead, game over. There right. are, there's room for plenty of players. Yeah, maybe they should go the same route and say, you know, you want Google Docs with AI or whatever, right. you know, that's $30 a month. Now, you Google want... will do it cheaper. Keep in mind, they're an advertising company, not for a software company necessarily for now. for now. She says for now. <laughs> yes. Steve, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Our Steve Kovac. Still ahead, my next guest says Jay Powell has nailed it so far. But there is one thing the Fed should definitely not do from here. We will ask him what that is next. Also, check out shares of SAP. They are slipping after posting an earnings miss and a revenue miss as well. This all happened midday, as you can see, just uh, just after noon Eastern time. It's a European company or called. Shares are down 5%. Uh, they did see a jump in cloud revenue year on year, offsetting a decline in software licensing revenue. They hiked overall full year guidance, but lowered the high end of that cloud revenue outlook, which helps explain the pressure you're seeing there. Worst day for the shares in over a year. We're back after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Today's surprise drop in jobless claims raising concerns that wage inflation could force the Fed to keep hiking. But my next guest says while he believes Chair Powell has nailed the fight against inflation so far, raising rates from here would be a mistake. Joining me now is David Zervos, chief market strategist at Jefferies. You know why I love you, Dave? Because not many people come out and pound the table about how great and how right the Fed is. And you've been doing it for months and you were right about after SVB. And I mean, I won't go on and on, but, you know, you've, I, I give you credit. Thanks, Kelly. Although I'm not necessarily calling against uh, the next rate hike. I certainly think they're hiking rates next week. I was just making a point in my last piece, which I think is what you were referencing, <clears throat> that, and, and I've made this point many times, and it's fallen on deaf ears, and I've been dead wrong about this one, which is I think they should be considering some asset sales, especially yeah. with long-term yields as low as they are, and mortgages tightening up as much, and the housing market so strong, even though we got a little bit of weakness. Today. But they might say, why do we need to do anything other than what we're doing? Because according to you, we've been masterful. We have. I, I, I'm fully on board with the masterful idea, and I'm fully on board with another rate hike. And if we get a couple of point twos on the next core PCs and CPI, but we'll get them in CPI. If we get them in CPI before the, the September meeting, I think they could pause for sure. If we get point threes on any, either one of them or above, I think they'll probably go again, but I sort of, I, I guess I just throw it out there as, hey, if inflation doesn't come down as fast as they're thinking, if we're not getting down to 3.9 to 3.6 on core PC by the end of the year, why not consider the asset sales instead of another hike in September or another set of hikes? There's, there's people out there that think they're going to go, you know, to six or six and a half percent before all said and done because they're right. not very optimistic inflation outlook. I just throw it out there because I think. There, there's a lot of things that can destabilize in the front end, and the long end is just traded so, so well. It's giving them an opportunity to at least uh, prep the market for yeah. it if it's needed. I don't think it'll be needed, but if it's needed, they should think about it. You know, people hate the balance sheet. The investors hate talking about it. People insist there's no correlation. I think the Fed hates it. I mean, they tried to shrink it in 2019. They saw the repo crisis. We say, well, with twice as big now, what could a little shrinking do? And I don't know. I don't know. I, I think everyone's afraid of it. You're, you're right. I, I'm just, you know, I've been pounding the tape. Look, I used to write about this stuff back in, you know, 2014, 15, when we were lifting off on, you know, my belief that asset sales were a part of the program. So, look, I mean, we've had some good calls. We've had some bad calls. I certainly uh, thought they would consider asset sales more aggressively. I don't think anybody wants to have these mortgages on the books. Uh, I think they just got kind of convinced by the big banks that raising rates was a little bit more... Uh, was just a little bit more traditional and a little easier. And by the way, given what's happened with bank earnings uh, in this latest round, Bingo. the banks have won the bait. The yes. debate. They got what they wanted. Their NIM is really big. No, it, it's, uh, so. it's exactly. And, and for anyone who missed it a couple of months ago, I mean, you made this prescient call that you thought the reason why there wasn't more fallout from these rate hikes, a la 1994 and, and Orange County's bankruptcy and all that is because it was all in the Fed. The Fed owns all the mortgage backed securities. Who's going to take the losses when they own them all? So why would they sell them now? To your point, no, there would be no buyers. Mortgage rates would spike further. I mean, it'd be it'd be bad for everybody. Well, I, I, uh, let, let's play let's play devil's advocate a little on that. Kelly, they, you know, the current coupon mortgage right now is about a Fannie five and a half. Uh, they've got a few of those, not too many. They've got more one and a halves and twos. But, they, you know, as I pointed out in my note last week, they've got about three to four hundred million dollars worth, a billion dollars of high coupon mortgages. That's not a trivial amount. We did six hundred billion in QE2. That was a big number. So letting three or four, three or four hundred billion go 
instead of a couple of rate hikes, I, I think is uh, is worth talking about. And those are high coupon mortgages that all trade at ninety dollar price. They're seasoned. They're pay, there's pay, that's paper that the market would love to get their hands on. So I think they could nuance this. But look, it, it's a fun debate. It really annoys a lot of clients because, particularly mortgage clients. Uh, so I like to write about it and get people a little riled up in the summer over things. But um, you know, look, we've had uh, I think we had some nice calls on on. Uh, on the on the SVB thing, we've had some other calls that worked out. The the asset sale call was one of those things that just did not come to fruition for yeah. me overall. But, but again, there's there's sort of what they should do and what you what we what, what's right. And uh, we appreciate you writing a little bit of both. You know, so Dave, thanks so much for your time today. Always a pleasure, Kelly. David Zervos joining me from Jeffries. That does it for us, everybody. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.